Well, we're in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, this is our last week in the Lord's Prayer, and it's where Jesus teaches us how to pray. And there's a theme that we've seen so far in the, in the first few requests. I don't know if you've picked up on it, but there's a theme in this, in this prayer. If you think about it even last week, if you were here, or if not, the, the line before the, the passage that we're in today, verse 11, where he says, give us today our daily bread. The theme that, that is woven through the whole prayer is a theme of, of total dependence upon God. It's a prayer of utter dependence upon God. It's saying, God, I want to be about you and your glory, and I need you to provide every single thing that I need today and going forward in my life, even down to my sustenance, my bread and my water, the things that will keep me alive today. That's what I need from you. And it's really dependence, total dependence upon God that fuels and feeds prayer. The truth is, if you struggle with prayer, and I think most of us would probably raise our hands and say that we struggle with prayer. But if you struggle with prayer, the the reason that you and I struggle is because of self-dependence. That's how we struggle with prayer. That struggle lies at the very core of our human condition. We think truthfully, if we're honest, the reason that we don't pray or don't pray more or don't pray more earnestly, we don't pray more regularly, we don't pray more heartfelt is because some part of me, maybe a big part, maybe a small part, but some part of me thinks I'm really, I can handle a good bit of life on my own. I just need God to kind of fill in the gaps for the parts that are difficult for me or I, I can't quite reach, but I can handle a lot of stuff. It's sort of like my kids when they put away the dishes in the kitchen, like they can do most of the dishes. There's just some that are a little bit too high for them not to step in and help them. Some of us view life that way. Like I can reach a lot of things, but I need a guy to come in and help me with the rest of it. But if you are conscious, if someone is conscious of your absolute and utter, absolute and utter dependence upon God, and you know how caring he is and how powerful he is, you can't but help to call out to him in prayer. And not one time, but continually. All of a sudden, Paul's commandment to us to pray without ceasing also doesn't seem like a burden anymore. It all of a sudden seems like a lifeline if you are aware of your your dependence upon God. Jesus has been teaching us how to pray in a way that reflects our utter dependence. I'm going to read the passage again. I just read it. I'm going to read it again so it can be fresh in our minds. Pray then like this, Jesus says, our father in heaven, hear that, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts beginning of our our passage today and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses notice how the 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 prayer is sort of is art It starts off with how caring God is and how great he is. Our father, that is what we get to call him, Abba, Daddy, Father. 
who is in heaven. So that God, the God that believers are able to call our father is all powerful and almighty. He stands outside of time and all that is created is all created by his hand and is sustained by the word of his power. He is father and he is all powerful. And whenever you know that personally in your soul, it stirs not just like admiration, but it stirs adoration. It stirs worship and love and praise to the God of all creation who now by his own work through his son, by his sacrifice, by his condescension, I get to call Abba or daddy father. And that kind of God demands and pulls from our soul. Whenever you see that and you know that it pulls from our soul and demands a response, a response that says your rule come God. Because you alone are great and good. I thought I was great and good. If I'm honest, oftentimes I think I'm pretty good and fairly great. But you alone are truly great and truly good. And so I pray for your kingdom to come, for your rule to be done over mine. Over my will. Doesn't mean I always align with it and always think it's wise and good. There are many times where I'm not sure But the cry of my soul says, your kingdom come, your rule be done over mine. And this is how deep our need goes when you see that kind of God. God, even give me today the bread that I need to be on my table. I know it's in my, for many of us, I know it's in my cupboard. I know the food that I need is in my pantry, in my refrigerator. I know I've got money in my pocket but I'm aware of my absolute dependence upon you so much that I'm crying out that you would even give me that because I know that nothing is assured. If you were to pull back your hand or your presence, all of that could be gone in a moment. And today we deal with the last two requests and we see how even deeper our dependence goes than even just food for today or tomorrow. These, these last two requests are things that we need just as much as our daily bread. But I don't think many of us believe that. Like some of us fasted the other day and I was aware by lunchtime that I didn't have my daily bread that day. I mean, it was, it was around me and that's what made it even harder, but it was, I, I, I didn't have it in my stomach. I was of really aware of that that day, but how often am I aware of these requests? And that's why the word and is there. You, do you see that? And he comes about, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts and lead us not into temptation. It's saying that those are needs that we need as deeply and as much as we need our daily food. Jesus is teaching us that our deliverance from evil within us and around us is as basic and as important as our need for food. He's teaching us what we ask God to do with evil and sin. God, you see the evil that's in my own heart. You see the sin that's in my heart. You see the things that I have done. You see the things that I have seen. You see the things that I've been exposed to. You see the things that have been done to me. You see the pressures from outside of me. God, I need you to come and deliver me from the evil that is inside me and that is around me. We are incredibly dependent upon the Father to show us what we pray and how we pray. So the first thing he talks about is our need for confession. Did you see that? 
Give us this, I'm sorry, forgive us and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The first thing we see is our need for confession. You see, you can't ask God to forgive you of your debts if you don't think that you have any to confess. When we confess our sins to God, we're not just telling him about the things that he doesn't know about, like, like, like admitting to a parent that, yes, yes, we did, we did go outside. Yes, we did have somebody over. Yes, we did have a party. But we're not admitting to God things that he doesn't already know. Confession is when we understand where our attitudes and actions have crossed the line with God and we come into alignment with him and we own that before him. God, the things that I have done, the things that I have said, the things that attitudes that I have had don't align with you and what you've called me to be. And I'm confessing that to you, that that is a debt to you. I own that with God. See, that begins by, by, by seeing ourselves and our faults in comparison with God. If, if you and I look at ourselves on our own, we are incredibly good at grading by a curve. Don't you get so irritated when somebody like cuts in front of you at line or somebody pulls out in front of you on the road? But then whenever you do the same, you get irritated with the person that you pulled out in front of because they honk at you. We grade all of life by a curve. We grade ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions. But something happens whenever people see God. Ever seen that in scripture? When somebody comes in contact with God, they suddenly become aware of their own sin and their own faults and their own failures. And they don't pretend anymore. They don't give excuses They don't act like it's not a big deal. They don't try to blame shift. All of a sudden, when you see the holiness and the purity of God, you cannot help but to own, this is who I am and I have been wrong. And anything that you want to give me in return, any any payment you need to give me in return, you are right and just to do so because you alone are holy and I have gone against you. It's a shocking process for many of us to think that we're, that we're sinful. It's a shocking process for many of us to think that we're our debtors. Because we've been told, you are, you are great. You are good. Every desire that you have is legitimate. And you get to determine what is right for you. You are the king of your own life. But that's not what God teaches in the Bible. He tells us that he did create us good and he created us in his image that mankind has great promise. But he also tells us that since the rebellion of Adam, the heart of man, every single man and woman has been corrupted. We are sinful. The word sin means to miss the mark. But it's not the kind of miss the mark like, oh, I was, I was aiming for the bullseye and I missed. It's sort of like missing the mark like the, like the barrel of a rifle is intentionally and rebelliously bent away from the target. We are all sinful. And that rebellion, that rebellious 
heart that was within us and the actions and attitudes that come from that, it places us outside of the smiling face of God. And scripture tells us it places us under the wrath of God. The Bible, in fact, calls us children of wrath. We throw around as Christians the term salvation a lot, don't we? Are you saved? Salvation, we sing it all the time, we say it. But, but do, you, do you see in the light of that what it actually means? If ever since I was born, I had a rebellious heart and nature that was continuously and rebelliously missing the mark of what God has called me to be and called me to do, namely to live a life in glad submission to him. If that is who I am in the very core of my being from birth, then I need, whether I'm a Christian or not, I need to be saved. I need salvation. Whether I grew up in church, grew up moral, grew up outside the church, lived an actually seemingly rebellious life or a seemingly good life, that core of my being is still there and it corrupts everything that I am and everything that I'm around. So you see, no matter... No matter whether you're a Christian or not, no matter what you think your greatest problems are, your truly greatest problem is sin. It's the sinful nature that lies inside the the core of every single one of our hearts. If our life is like a fountain, sin is like this, this little pollution that keeps polluting the waters at a very source continually, continually, and we can't seem to get rid of it. The question is, what do we do with that sin nature that's inside of us? That's the problem in our life. And not only that, but what do we do with the, with the debt of sinful actions and attitudes that we have all accumulated in our life? So we all have the nature of sin, which is the real problem, but we all have the deeds of sin. The things that we have done are the fruit of the problem. Now, when you become a Christian, you drastically change. You believe on Jesus, not just in Jesus. You believe on Jesus. You place your faith and hope on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and as the what is called the payment or the propitiation for your sins. The satisfaction of the wrath of God, the rightful wrath of God to pay for your sins. You confess him as your Lord. Your sin is forgiven. You're given the gift of the Holy Spirit and you're made a new creation. You have been saved. At some point you're made a new creation and you will be saved. But you're also being saved. And on this side of eternity, you'll always have your fleshly or your sinful nature. You have the Spirit of God. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God within you. At a heart level, you've been made new. You love the Lord at your heart level. You want to obey at a heart level. You want to serve him and your deepest desire, your deepest, deepest desire. Down there at the bottom of your soul, your deepest desire is for God's glory. But yet you still find inside yourself, don't you, that indwelling sin? There's a, you find inside yourself, there's a a power, a a gravitational pull that's, that's pulling you. It's still at the work in your soul, pulling you away from the rule of God in your life. Do you feel that pull? You would nod your head or you're lying or you're not responding. That's okay. We all feel the pull is what I'm saying. The the remaining power, if you're a believer, the remaining power of indwelling sin pulls against the growing power of the Spirit of God inside your soul. 
So you see the greatest problem for the life of the non-Christian and for the Christian is that our sin and our sin nature. By the way, it's possible, I just want to put this out there today, it's possible to think that you're a Christian, profess to be a Christian, and not actually be one. Because if you notice, a Christian is not someone who simply believes about Jesus or about the Bible. A Christian is someone who believes on Jesus as the only hope that they have before God. The only hope that they have before God because of their sin and their sin nature and has experienced the new birth of faith inside their soul. The spirit of God has come to dwell within them. Our great problem is sin. And it's a great need that should be, that we all should feel that all, the great need that we all should is to feel our need for salvation, not somewhere in the past. Not that I walked down an aisle one day or I said a prayer or professed faith in Christ. Not that I became a Christian and was saved one day, but every single person, the need is to be saved today. The non-believer needs it because they're under the wrath of God. But the believer, one who says our father, who can say our father in heaven, they need it too. They need God's sustaining power for today, to save them today. A Christian doesn't look back to that moment in the past and say, oh, I was, I was saved. Thanks, thank God. I'm okay now. A Christian does look back. He looks back at that moment and thanks God. A Christian looks back at their baptism and says, thank the Lord, that is, that is who I am. I know that it's my new identity. But they also feel so strongly the, the power and pull of sin in their own soul that they are continually crying out for salvation today. Forgive me my debts. We are debtor to God. That's an uncomfortable truth. I can feel it now in the room. We try to wriggle out from underneath it. You're a debtor. You are a debtor to God. That's a horrible truth. We don't want to believe it. We don't want to think about it. So what we do, we distract ourselves. We numb ourselves. We medicate ourselves. So we don't have to face or think about the terrible truth that we are debtors to God. And we have so many things to distract ourselves with, don't we? We call ourselves blessed as a nation because of all the riches and wealth and options that we have, many of us as people. But what if the wealth that we possess is actually not a blessing, but a judgment of God upon us? Things in our hands, things around us that we can constantly distract ourselves from the fact that we are truly debtors before a holy and a mighty and a righteous God. Are the things that are, are those things doling us to the reality of our personal and deep, deep debt to him? Yet in spite of all those things that we distract ourselves with, still gnawing on our soul deep within us is a knowledge that we aren't enough, we haven't done enough, and we can't do enough to wipe out the debt before God. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He's talking about this, our sins that we have done and our sin nature. 
Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are a debtor to God and you can't repay it and no one is excluded. No one. So what will you do? Live a better life? Keep better company around you? Have better friends? Go to church? Give to the poor? You can't work your way out. It's like trying to to dig to the earth's center on the beach with a plastic spoon. You can dig a hole, but it won't go very deep and it won't last very long. No. We must be delivered. And who will deliver you? You can't do it yourself. Everybody else around you is all in the same boat. Who will deliver you? It's to God you owe the debt and it's he alone who must clear it for you. Paul said, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to Christ Jesus. So if you've never seen the appeal of Jesus, can you see it now? If you've never understood why people around you who are believers express, not just talk admiring about Jesus, but who express love for him, can you see it now? He is God who we owe the debt to and he is the savior who has forgiven us by his sacrifice on the cross and has given us an assurance of a future in his glorious resurrection. Praise his name. And all that is required is to look upon him. To do better or be better, we've already seen that goes nowhere. All that's required is simply to look upon him, look away from yourself, look away from your sin, look away from your independence and look to him and confess him as what he is. You don't make him Lord. You simply confess him and agree you are Lord. And you trust him to save you by his work alone. So cry to him. Forgive my debts. It's included in the prayer because he will. It's included in the prayer because we need it and we forget. Maybe today you need to do that for the first time in your life. Maybe you're a believer today and that's what you need. And there's the next thing that's really connected to that prayer, forgive us our debts, is is a prayer that's about unforgiveness. It's a prayer that's asking for, really for deliverance from unforgiveness. Forgive us, it says, as we have forgiven our debtors. Now this can be a confusing statement. The question is, is it a conditional statement? Is it saying, is it saying this? Is it saying, I will forgive you, God is saying, if you go and forgive everybody around you who has done you wrong. It kind of sounds like that, right? And that's, I've heard it, I've literally heard it taught that way in the past six months. You can only be forgiven once you have forgiven. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. That the best way to think about this is, is, to, is, is that if we truly understand forgiveness, that debt that we were just talking about that I owe to God, that every single one of us individually owe to God, 
If I truly understand my forgiveness for my debt from God, then I will be forgiving to those who are around me. In other words, our level of forgiveness of those who have wronged us is the test of our repentance. Our level of forgiveness to those around us is the test of our own repentance. But how can we forgive people like that? Every single one of us have to struggle with this. Many of us in this room have had terrible things that have been done to us by people close to us, which makes it even worse. How can we forgive them? How can we just let them off the hook for the wrong that they have done to me? Is it just a decision I make? Or I choose, I choose to forgive this person. Well, yes. And no. It is a decision. I have to decide. I, I, I'm going to I'm set my mind and my heart to forgive this person. But Jesus is also telling us that the path to out of unforgiveness isn't by trying to forget what people have done to us or to minimize what they have done to us. Because some of them are great wrongs. We, we see, in fact, we see the martyrs in the book of Revelation crying out to God for recompense to, to repay the wrongs that have been done to them that they are wrongfully killed. God is a God of justice and he will execute justice on those who have done wrong. So what do I, how can I, how can I just forget or minimize them. Well, we don't do that. The path lies not in our action towards them and me saying, all right, I'm going to forgive you out of myself and my strength. The, the path to forgiveness lies from Jesus' actions toward us, not my actions toward them, but Jesus' actions towards me. But, but if, but, it's, but we think, right, right, like, but I haven't done anything wrong like that. I haven't molested anybody. I haven't abused anybody. I haven't betrayed anyone like that person betrayed me. I haven't cheated on anyone. But Paul hadn't either. Paul lived an excellent life. I mean, he, would, he lived an excellent life. In fact, so much so that he said, look, before I met Christ, basically, this is Randy's paraphrase, before I met Christ, I was absolutely and utterly hitting it out of the park every single day, every single pitch that came to me. And yet Paul called himself the chief of sinners. Why did he say that? I bet it made him easy if he really believed that in his soul. I bet it made it easy for him to forgive other people. But why, did he, why would he say that? He said it because forgiveness, the path to forgiving other people, the path out of unforgiveness, isn't by minimizing what someone has done to me. A debt is a true debt. A wrong has been done. Some of them may be small, some of them may be large. Some of it is people cutting, up, cutting in front of me on the street. Some of it may be something unimaginably difficult to even put words to. But it says that, it comes from the heart that says, I'm seeing that debtor as a person like me, and I know my debt before God. Jesus said, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but 
you don't notice the log that is in your own eye. What Jesus is saying is that that's how forgiveness begins. Forgiveness begins when I'm so preoccupied with the log that is in or was in my own eye. And I'm saying, hey, did you see that? Did you see how big that log was that was in my eye? Did you see how Jesus removed it? Did you see, how how did he do that? How could he forgive that? How could he forgive me? But he has. And look at the cost that it cost for him to remove that log from my, look at that cross. Look at the cost it cost him. Do you you see Christ become a, a lowly peasant? He did that to forgive me. Do you see how he was rejected by his leaders and his people and his own family? He did that so he could forgive me. Did you see how he he was betrayed by one of his closest friends? He did that so he could forgive me. Did you see him being beaten? Did you see his quiet endurance as he carried his load down the Via Della Rosa? Did you see him being beaten? Do you see the nails as they hammered them into his flesh and bones? Did you see the cross holding him up? Do you see the sky darkened? He did that to forgive me. Do you see the eternal son of God experience utter and eternal loneliness? He did that to forgive me. That's what it took to forgive me of my debt before him. Can you hear his groan? Can you hear his groan as he is dying? Do you hear what he says? Do you hear what he says as he's pinned up on that wood? Do you hear what he says? Do do you hear it? He says, Father, forgive them. What kind of forgiveness is this for me? What kind of savior is he for me? I hear those words and they reverberate down through the centuries. I hear them pound in my eardrums. I can still feel where the log used to be. It's still sore. Sometimes I miss it. Sometimes I want to go back to it, but those words keep coming back to me over and over again, week after week, day after day, sermon after sermon, communion table after communion table. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Oh, oh, wait. Did you say somebody has wronged me? You said somebody has done something to me? I would think about it, but I'm more preoccupied with my Savior. I forgot about it for a minute. I I forgive them. I know it was bad. I know it was wrong. It it hurt me. It, It hurt me bad. But you see... I'm too busy praising my savior and the fact that he removed the giant log that was from my own eye to think about it anymore. Wait, you said they're not remorseful. They're not sorry. They haven't apologized. It doesn't seem to bother them. They don't seem to understand how big it was. Are they the reason I have trust issues? Are they the reason I can't have a good relationship with men? Are they the reason that I don't want to go home? They gave me these scars. They stole money from me. They stole years from me. They're the ones that spread those rumors about me. They told my secret. They picked on me. They ignored me. Oh man, you're right. They were were wrong. My scars haven't fully healed yet. I walk with kind of a limp now. I'm, I'm not the same since this happened. You're right, but let me tell you. 
Have you seen that log that was in my eye? Have you seen where it's gone? Because I, I can't find it. Somebody came and took it from me. Do you know who took it? He's the one I'm focused on. Because you see, forgiving my debtors isn't about minimizing what has been done to me. It's about a fixation on what Jesus is for me. Forgiving my debtors isn't so much about letting them free from their debt. It's a preoccupation, preoccupation with the one who has set me free from mine. And when I really see, when I really see that, I respond like Peter did. When he was in the boat and he fell down before the Lord, he said, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But yet the Lord brought him close. Christians aren't ones who continually wallow in their sin because we are forgiven. Neither are Christians one who who caused others to wallow in theirs because we are forgiven. And if we don't have that kind of humble thankfulness, if we're steadily keeping count, remembering and reliving all the wrongs, nursing our grudges, then we aren't aware of our own deep dependence upon God and his forgiveness towards us. Can you pray those lines? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who forgive, who have, who are our debtors. Jesus, in finishing up this prayer, he says, forgive us. He tells us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What does he mean by that? Does God, does God tempt us? Does God allow temptation? Those are good questions. If he does, to what end? Well, we don't really understand some of those mysteries. That we're told that God doesn't tempt us with evil. But yet we're also told that he allows testing of our faith to show that it will endure for our sanctification, for the proving of our faith, for our building up of our faith, for our sanctification, for us growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Really what we're praying for here is we're praying for a deliverance from the evil within us, that gravitational pull that we were talking about earlier, that we consistently feel that is pulling us away from the rule and reign of God towards our own rule and reign. And Jesus teaches us that we should pray this prayer with the same earnestness that we seek for and ask for our daily bread. What he's saying is that you and I, God doesn't, Christian maturity isn't where you get strong enough that you aren't tempted or that you are able to throw away temptation by yourself. He says what he's telling us is that the Christian maturity is us constantly, consistently, earnestly pleading with God to come and do what I cannot do myself to pull me away from temptation. We need help to overcome temptation. We need outside help to not fall prey to the schemes and the wiles of the evil one. That's what actually a lot of uh, 
a lot of theologians believe that the, that final line should be, it delivers from evil. It should really be delivers from the evil one. And he is too much for us. But many of us love our idea of, of our independence. It's our first instinct. I think I can handle myself. I think I should handle myself. Uh, we're thrown whenever we're, we're drawn into evil or when evil overcomes us and surprises us. You ever like done something uh, terrible, something sinful, and afterwards you thought, I can't believe I did that. Well, you probably don't have a good appraisal of who you are because if you can't believe that you did that, then you don't really understand the power of the evil one and the depth of the indwelling sin that is pulling you away constantly and your absolute and utter dependence upon. Hear that word again? Absolute and utter dependence upon the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God within your soul to not save you back there and not just save you somewhere in the future, but to save you right now and deliver you from temptation and deliver you from the schemes and power of the evil one. But we're too trapped by our pride of performance. We're trapped by our despondency of performance. If I did well, if I stayed away from sin, I feel good about myself, or I I fell into sin, I feel terrible about myself. Either way, what the evil one is doing in that is is trapping us in our own self-reliance. And we're not relying upon the powerful Holy Spirit of God at work within us. And whenever we are relying upon ourselves, we are cut off from the only help you have. Could this be the reason that you're spiritually dry? Could this be the reason the truth of of the gospel doesn't stir your soul like it once did? Could this be the reason that the, the truth of the gospel and the truth of Jesus never brings a tear to your eye? Could this be the reason that you don't sense the presence of God? Oh, you're orthodox and right in your beliefs. You know what you're supposed to believe. Maybe even better than other people around you. But if you're honest, there's a distance between your soul and Jesus because you really think that you can keep up this thing on your own. And whenever you and I do that, we are trapped in the wiles and the plan of the evil one who is pulling us away pulling us away. We see the Trinity at work in this prayer. The Father creates and guides providence. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then we see the son who wins our forgiveness through his death. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then we see the spirit powerful and dwelling, which enables us to overcome the power of the evil one and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine, the kingdom the power and the glory forever. This prayer is a prayer of dependence. It's a prayer for God's glory. And what we see in this prayer is the beauty of salvation, that God is glorified by the depth of our dependence. The believer is never independent of God. We are more aware of our dependence upon him moment by moment for our daily bread, for our forgiveness, for us to be able to forgive others, for us to be delivered from the power of the evil one and the temptation that pulls at the very core of our being. 
Do you glory in that? Do you glory in your dependence upon God? Do you value your dependence upon God? Or do you look at it kind of scornfully? And you wish you could operate by yourself under your own strength. Do you glory in your dependence? And allow that to stir praise for him? Communion is one way we do that. Concrete way every week when we gather to worship. That we come and say, just as I need someone to place the wafer and the juice in my hand, I need God to give me day by day, moment by moment, not only my, my food and my water and my drink, I need him to give me the help that I don't fall into my own sinful tendencies in the pool of the evil one in my heart. And it's an assurance that he will do it. It doesn't depend upon me. He's done it. He is doing it. And he will do it. When we gather together, the the feast that is ahead of us in eternity, that this is just a mere shadow or type of, that feast will be the feast where we celebrate that he completed all that he said he would complete in our salvation. He's a great God. So, I'm going to pray this morning. There'll be two stations. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, come forward and receive the bread and juice as a down payment and a sign of the feast that will come, that he will complete salvation that he's begun in you. And this morning, if you're not sure that you are a Christian, if you're not sure that you've ever experienced that new birth that we were talking about, this table is not for you, but today is for you. This gathering is for you because Christ is here for you. Take a moment and call out to him right where you are. Maybe you want to grab a friend or grab me and say, somebody pray with me. I feel God's spirit draw me to himself today. Today is my day. I'm going to pray. We're going to worship together. We open both stations for you to come up and worship God and receive his goodness towards you. Father, we thank you that you are everything that we need. You've called us to live dependent lives upon you. Forgive us for our independence. Forgive us for our unforgiveness. Forgive us for not realizing our debt to you and our continual need for you today. And Father, forgive us for thinking that we can stand on our own under the temptations and plans and schemes of the evil one. God, we pray, deliver us. Make us people who continually cry out for that. For your glory and for our joy. Amen.